Welcome back to another episode of Rambling About Rivers. A place to talk about all things rivers from the impacts of climate change to river health. We are going to take you on a journey to hear the many ways people are looking after and saving our rivers. So today's podcast is all about the return of the Twait Shad on the River Severn. So if you don't know, which I didn't, I have to say, I'm um, completely naive to the, the fish species, but this is a fish that once existed in the River Severn over 100 years ago. But due to the large number of weirs constructed, the fish declined in numbers quite significantly. And today we're actually going to talk to um, uh, two people, which is... Um the first on this podcast and the first up will be uh, Rosie Crogan. Uh, she's the education officer at the Seven Rivers Trust and Charles Crundwell, uh, who's the senior technical specialist in fisheries at the Environment Agency. So they're going to be talking us through these iconic species and what they've been doing to improve the migratory journey for the shad um, through their Unlocking the Seven project. So it's restoring 158 miles of river, which is really a, a massive amount. It's, a, it's incredible. And it's just such an exciting project. Um, I, I love the engagement side of this project and I'm so excited to go and visit. It seems like a really fascinating, um, uh, fascinating project. And I, I, I know very little about the Shad, so I'm really excited to uh, learn a bit more. So should we jump straight into it? Well, welcome, Rosie and um, and Charles. Thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to just start off with introducing yourselves and saying where you're from? Yep. So, hi, everyone. My name is Rosie Crogan, and I work for the Seven Rivers Trust on the Unlocking the Seven project. And my role within the organisation is as the education officer. And hi, I'm Charles Crondwell, um, and I work for the Environment Agency. And my main role on the Unlocking the Seven project is organising all the exciting monitoring of shad, and also on the fish pass design um, to make sure that they will work for when they are built. Welcome, uh, Rosie and Charles. Thanks for coming along today. Thank you. Thanks very much for having us. So I'm going to get stuck straight in about this iconic fish species that everyone's been telling me about and um, the journey that it takes. Or, you know, can you, what can you tell me about this This the shad what what it, what is this, what's so special about this fish okay well i'll take that one on um well the shad is uh, a fish that not many people have heard of um it is a member of the herring family and there are two species which um breed in the united kingdom one is the twait shad which is a little bit smaller and uh, the larger cousin, the Alice Shad. Um, and the River Severn, um, although it was very famous for Alice Shad, it's actually the Twait Shad, which is more numerous now in the River Severn. Um, so it's a herring. It's, um, you know, it is definitely a sea fish, even though it comes into fresh water to spawn. So, so most, as you can imagine, most um, sea fish either spawn in the sea or the estuary. But the, um, this fish, the Twait Shad, comes all the way into fresh water to spawn. And historically, um, it used to go all the way up to the Welsh borders. So it used to make it all the way up through Shropshire, um, through Shrewsbury and up to Paul Quay above the Vernery catchment. Um, but unfortunately, it cannot reach that anymore. And we'll touch on why it can't do that later on in the, in the story. Um, but the shad, um, as I said, is, is a herring. 
Um, and it's a beautiful fish. Um, it is um, about 30 centimeters to around about 50 centimeters uh, maximum size. Um, it is a bar of silver. It doesn't have a lateral line. So it looks absolutely a single bar of silver and it comes in in May. It was referred to as the May fish. Um, when it used to run the River Severn, probably in its tens or hundreds of thousands, um, the population now is, is much smaller. And what it does is it comes into river just for about 30 days in any year in May uh, to lay its eggs uh, and before going back out to sea. And um, like a lot of uh, migratory fish, um, this fish managed to survive between years and may come back up to five times um, to lay its eggs. Um, and there are only four rivers with a population, a known breeding population in the United Kingdom. We're right at the northern range of its distribution um, across Europe. Uh, and they all flow into the Bristol Channel, uh, which are the River Severn, the River Wye, the River Usk and the River Towie down in West Wales. I think I've seen a picture. It's got, is it got quite a forked tail? Is that right? Yeah, it has an amazing forked tail. It, it is designed to swim, not to jump. Um, and so it is incredibly thin if you look at it head on. It's only about 35 centimetres, uh, 35, 35 millimetres wide. Um, as I said, it can, it can grow around about 50, 50 centimetres. Um, but it just powers through the water as this kind of blade effectively. And they are fantastic swimmers. I mean, they can swim up to, you know, five meters a second. So, you know, these things can really shift if they want to. Right. So they, they use that they come up to the river um, to spawn. Is that right? Yep, they come in purely to spawn. That's the only reason they come in. They don't feed a bit like a salmon. They don't feed in fresh water. We don't believe they feed. Um, they, they do their business. They, they, they spawn. They, they shed their eggs, um, you know, in the water column. And as soon as they're, they're spawned out and everything, they return very, very rapidly because we, we've, as part of the Unlocking Sem project, have actually tagged some of these fish um, very, very rapidly straight back out into the estuary to, to, resume, fishing, uh, to resume feeding again. Wow. Okay. So they, they actually laid their eggs in the, in the water column itself. Is that so not like a, like a salmon in reds or in the ground? No, they have um, um, what was referred to as semi-pelagic uh, eggs. So they will eventually sink to the bottom, but all the spawning takes per place in the, in the surface layer. It, it, it is very distinct how they spawn. It's only really done at night. Um, and what they do is that the female will release the eggs and the, the single male will circulate really really fast in a kind of swirling pattern a bit like you moving your finger around in a bathtub making that kind of noise um, to fertilize the eggs and the eggs will then drift slowly downstream and then catch um, in, in, the, in, in the, the substrate on the bed before hatching relatively quickly they're quite large eggs but relatively quickly um, depending on river temperature about four days and they do that on dark nights um, throughout the river uh, and it is well you can we, we actually as part of this project put out recording devices to listen for them so we can work out what nights they're spawning and where they're spawning and it is a very eerie but very distinctive sound it's, it's worth going out in the middle of the night to uh, to listen to it if you if that's the thing that floats your boat so to speak oh wow that sounds really i think that sounds really exciting actually and that's so that's literally next month at the moment we're recording this in april so that'll be in may so that's really that's um so are you quite excited uh, about this this 
this coming May. Um, are you expecting to see a big difference from last year? Um, yeah, well, I'm always excited to see the shad come back. I mean, it's an amazing migration. And, and on the seven, there are a couple of places where you can actually see the fish migrating because they generally migrate in the lower river during the day. So you, there are, you know, particularly around Tewkesbury, there's a place where you can actually watch these fish migrating upstream. Um, how it will change from last year? Well, the biggest change is going to be that we're not actually, um, well, we've still got the, the COVID pandemic, but, you know, we're learning to live with it and work around it a little bit more. So last year we did almost no monitoring because we couldn't go out um, at the peak time. If you can remember back to that year, we were in full lockdown at this period last year. Um, this year we're, we're hopeful to get a full program in of um, acoustic tracking, you know, tagging of the fish, um, spawning, watching, uh, system science counts, um, etc. So um, we're hoping to do as much as we can within the restrictions that, um, that we will have to work around. Yeah, and uh, just picking up on something you said, you said it had to be quite very dark. Um, does light pollution affect spawning at all or...? Um, that's kind of unknown at the moment. Um, we, we'll probably find that out a little bit more this year, um, not conclusively or scientifically, but as I said, up until now, the, the population of Shad has been confined to below Worcester, a big weir in Worcester called Diglas Weir. Um, and if you can think of the River Seven downstream of there, it, it is predominantly through rural um, areas with very little light pollution. But the minute they can get above Diglas Weir, which they should be able to do this year with the new fish pass that has been opened, um, they're entering into, you know, a small but a pretty well lit city. And it'll be interesting to see if spawning behaviour through that lit section of the of Worcester is different um, or, or not compared to the darker reaches further downstream. The, the reason they need the dark is because they're very vulnerable. That's why they spawn at night. I mean, they're pretty obvious when they're spawning. And if it was in daylight, I imagine there'll be plenty of predators saying, yeah, we'll have one of those, thanks. Um, and at night, they're left to their own devices, effectively. Wow, it's incredible, isn't it, that we're still, you know, for a fish that's been around for so long, we're still learning so much about them. Incredible. So, so Rosie, you, you're the education officer on, um, and you're working on this Unlocking the Seven project. Do you want to give us a bit of an overview of what that project's, um, project's all about and, and how this is going to help the Shad? Yeah, definitely. So my role specifically within the project is, as you've said, um, the education side. So I oversee the formal learning part of the activity plan. So working with schools and, um, and children and through primary school, secondary, right up to A-level and, and university, both in schools and also bringing them to the river itself. But that's just a small part of this really enormous um, project that we're all so proud to be part of. Um, and in terms of Unlocking the Seven as a whole, it's a conservation and river engagement project. So it's really for people and for wildlife. And those two areas um, are, are really key in kind of making it a success. So the funders, the National Lottery Heritage Fund and the EU Life Programme have both been really instrumental in making this happen and, and making, it, um, making it a success. And so in terms of, of those two programmes of work, we've got the capital works, the kind of construction side of things, which is the building of the fish passes themselves. And then we've also got a community engagement team who work really hard to make the project work for the people and the populations um, around those sites, really kind of reconnecting them with the river and, and making them realise kind of what an amazing place it is and how important it is to bring back the wildlife that's been um, been restricted up until now. Yes. So so when did you start? the? When did this project start? Um, yeah, I've been involved in this project for, for a few more years than, than Rosie. Uh, basically, um, 
it's always the shad on the river seven have obviously been known about for for years um but there was never really a mechanism for for building fish passes on on the main barriers that were going to cause the, the you know the distribution to be held back below um worcester um basically shad kind of falls between kind of uh, seawater um, or sea fish legislation and freshwater uh, legislation and hence there hasn't really been an obvious funding source for for doing it um, but in recent years, um, particularly with the change of British Waterways to Canal Rivers Trust, where the focus of their work has changed, um, there's a lot more about community engagement uh, and various things like this, which I'm sure we can hear more about. And what that means is that we have different pots of money that we can now go for that just a statutory uh, organization like the environment agency wouldn't have been able to or, or natural England. Um, so it's kind of the idea has been there for for many years certainly um you know since 2003 i remember we were talking about it then um but certainly six or seven years back um it started off as a kind of germ of idea but slowly the partnership formed and with a common goal we've managed to unlock money um to allow us to realize our dream in in one go so you know it's uh, it's a long history uh, but shad have a very long history yeah. So just picking up on something that you mentioned earlier, Charles, about obviously they, 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 they don't kind of jump. They're very much a swimming fish. Does that mean that the weirs have to be, you know, uh, quite a lot different to say, you know, the, uh, sorry, the, um, the fish passes, et cetera, have to be quite a lot different to say something for trout or salmon? Yeah, that that's true. Um, so shad used to have massive distribution across the whole of Europe. And, and if you can look back at historical articles and maps and everything, they have been penned back to just a few rivers, which are basically um, free from, from obstacles. Um, so just a few rivers left in France, a few in Portugal. Um, and, and as I said, the ones in the, the Seven Estuary where they've held on in, in places that are lower down the system. So, yeah, shad, um, they have two criteria which makes fish pass design quite challenging. Um, and that is that they, they don't really, well, they don't jump. I mean, you can see one jump occasionally, but they don't really jump, not like you imagine salmon jumps. Um, so they can't jump between pools and pools. And they also like to travel in shoals because they're a herring, they're a, they're a shoal fish. So they don't, they don't, you know, they're not in huge bait balls, for example, but they're in groups of, uh, of fish. And so they like to travel in sight of each other. So the fish passes that have been designed, um, the, the best way is obviously to remove the weir, the obstruction completely and return the river to, to its natural flowing course. Um, but that is not possible on the River Seven, for example, because under an Act of Parliament, it's a navigation and it's used still as a navigation to this day. So the weirs perform a purpose, which means they can't be uh, removed. So what we've had to do is design a fish pass. It's called a deep vertical slot fish pass. So it is split up into pools that break the head drop over the weir up into into manageable chunks but the deep vertical slot refers to the fact that instead of having a, a a lip and a falling waterfall between each pool the water flows through a deep vertical slot through the whole water column from pool to pool and this allows the shad to not only see each other but also swim through the notches from pool to pool rather than have to jump through them um, and the great thing about deep vertical slots in terms for other fish is that if a shad can get through it pretty much any other fish uh, that uses the river seven will have no trouble getting through these uh, fish passes as well 
Amazing. So sounds really complex. I mean, how have you found it, Rosie, to try and kind of translate and disseminate some of this information and get the community on board? So it's really um, a really exciting project to be a part of. And I think the the kind of unique nature of what we're what we're bringing to the community is just makes it quite an easy sell. Um, you know, it's kind of a, an amazing story. It's a good news story. So when you're bringing environmental information at the moment, it seems that so much of the stories that we tell are, are, are negative and with, with good reason. But it really is nice to be part of something where you can take a positive message. Um, and in terms of actually engaging schools, we've got a really lovely session that we do with with key stage two students, so primary school age, um, which involves a hand story. So I take in um, props that show the life cycle of the shad um, and I can then actually bring those out of a bag um, in front of the class and we can look at the differences between the characteristics of each life cycle stage. And then I also teach them a story that they can then tell using their hands as a gesture to kind of show the river and the fish and, and, the, and the eggs. Um, and then that is something that then they can take home and share with their families and friends as well. So I think it's it's got great scope um, for being something really exciting to tell people about. And and were the community like aware of the shad before this project? Do you think? Um, I wouldn't say so. I think it's definitely a lesser known um, species of fish. I think when we chat to communities about what they've heard of or what they think live in the river, I think the general consensus is that they people don't really appreciate how much biodiversity there is in the river. I think there's quite a disconnect between what people see when they're walking along um, the riverbank and they can see the surface, and then really appreciating what lies beneath. And so. Um, really educating people about the range of things that you can find beneath the surface and then introducing this kind of hero of our story, the Shad. Um, that's definitely been a lot of new information to most people, I think. That's today. If you went back 170 years before the navigation weirs were made and then all the way back into history to, you know, to the 13th century, we managed to find perfectly good records of, of the use of Shad on the River Severn. Um, these fish were incredibly well known. Um, you probably found anyone who lived along the river would not only know the fish, but be quite excited by its return because it was basically a free protein source coming up river in what we now refer to as the hunger gap when there was pretty much no food around for people to eat. Um, so it was heavily exploited. Um, it's, it's, this, is, this project is very much about getting people to realise their the importance of their river back through history and to start value, valuing it again. So, um, yeah, 200 years ago, I would have thought pretty much everyone knew what a shad was. Today, hardly anyone. And this project is trying to turn that around and get people to appreciate what's below the surface. I have to say, I, I'd never heard of a shad before this. <laughs> I heard about this project. I had my hands up. I did not know. But I have a, a question about how many... How many barriers are we talking about on the on the River Severn? Right, um, the River Severn, um, because of this navigation act, um, is navigable from from you know head of tide at Gloucester all the way up to above Stourport. Um, and one of the good things for for restoration of the shad population is that the four navigation weirs that we're dealing with um, from Worcester up to Stourport are in a relatively short section of the of the river, uh, you know, 20 kilometres or, or thereabouts. Um, and then above that, uh, above Starport, as you go further up to, to Bridge North and, and up to Shrewsbury, the river, the river remains um, pretty much unchanged from when those navigation weirs were originally built. So basically by unblocking those four weirs on the main um, section of the River Severn from, from Worcester, um, you're opening up um, 
all the lost habitat that shad used to have uh, before before the navigation weirs were made. Um, they also use the River Team, which is the one of the larger tributaries that comes in just below um, Worcester. And that used to have a, a blocking weir at Poick, literally two kilometres up from where the confluence with the River Severn is. Um, that is a, a structure which was owned by the Environment Agency. And as part of this project, that has been lowered. Um, so, you know, if you wouldn't actually realise it was there, um, it's now kind of lowered to bed level. Um, so Shad can go up and over this and then the next weir up on that is at Nightwick, um, which has also been changed into a rock ramp, which allows Shad to go over that as well. And then they've got the whole of the river team up to Ludlow as well. So this project is restoring all the, between those six weirs, it's restoring all the uh, lost habitat for Shad that, from 170 years ago. Wow. So... We obviously focus quite a lot on uh, like unlocking and uh, the uh, the seven weirs and barriers. But is there other things that affect the shad? So like overfishing or water quality. Um, that's another thing that is really in our favour here. If um, the the seven estuary um, under the habitats directive um, is a special area of conservation of which shad is is a named feature. Um, and if you look through the documentation of that, it, it's classed as unfavourable. So there aren't sufficient shad um, for the amount that should be there. But if you look further into the document, it says the, the reason for failure is um, barriers to migration. So basically the fish are just not being able to get upstream far enough to spawn to produce enough juveniles to, to populate the seven estuary and, and then further out to sea. So in, in the seven in particular, um, no, it's the barriers which are the main drivers. Water quality is fine for them. Um, but if you go to other populations across Europe, then um, overfishing and uh, pollution of watercourses is often the main driver there. So we haven't had a, a history of eating shad for, as I say, probably 200 years and they're now protected anyhow. Um, some of the other countries, um, there is um, commercial exploitation of shad still going on, and, and that has caused um, collapses of, of the fishery in those areas. But no, we're very lucky in the seven that it appears that the only thing we've got to address is their migratory pathways. And then over time, we should see the restoration of favorable status in the seven estuary. Wow, amazing. That's great. I mean, the other, I guess the other big impact this project's had is from flooding, obviously, you know, you've had a lot of history of flooding on the seven uh, right up to last year, right? How how's that affected the project? Um, I think that that, will, that affects the project in two ways. So I think this will be a two part answer um, from both of us. Um, in terms of, um, we've been very lucky with when the floods have happened in terms of, uh, of monitoring, and uh, no flood has affected us really on the monitoring. So that that's fine, um, but it does affect us greatly on the fish pass builds. So not only did we have the um, pandemic, um, we also had the double whammy of some exceptional flows at the back end of last year. In, in Well, we had a big flood in August, which is not unheard of, but unusual, um, but then had a flood in, in September, October, and then throughout the winter. And basically, it's just delayed the, the fish pass construction um, effectively for, you know, put it back six months to, to a year. Um, but Rosie, I'm sure it's had a much bigger impact on other elements of the project. Yeah, I'd agree. So I think the the flooding has impacted the actual construction side of things probably the most out of any of the work streams. So teams have had to kind of pull off site and then 
um, be not working or having a downtime for a period of weeks and then go back on and, and set everything up again. And they've worked really well. So the construction teams have worked incredibly hard to kind of overcome those and minimize the impacts and get back on site as soon as possible. But it really was unavoidable. And in terms of the community engagement, a little bit like Charles was saying about um, when the floods occurred and not affecting monitoring too much. We were we were quite lucky that the winter floods um, came at a point where our community engagement is a little bit lower. So we're not bringing um, groups to the riverside as much during the winter. And so there wasn't um, too much of a clash there. When it came to the August floods and that sort of height of summer where we would be doing a lot of community engagement, bringing people to, to Digless Island and things like that, that definitely had, um, had an impact. And, um, just before COVID, we kind of had a, that final flood around sort of February time, um, 2020, um, and that impacted a few sort of school visits that we had, and then COVID hit. So that whole uh, that whole season was a bit of a bit of a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. And there, there's um, in the construction, you've got a viewing platform that you're that you're planning as well, haven't you? Yeah. So that's that's a really exciting part of the project. So. Um, with the with the Diglis um, fish pass, there's actually going to be a, a viewing platform and an underwater um, viewing window that people will be able to actually descend down to, and look through. So, as you kind of picture picture the fish pass, if you were standing at, at the top end looking back down, um, that's where there's going to be a platform or a terrace at footpath level, so that will be um, accessible to everybody. Um, and there's going to be some great interpretation there. So some panels telling people about um, about the construction of the fish pass, but also the kind of global context of the project and, and where that sits on, on a larger scale. And then as you go into a, a, a sort of concrete building, you'll then descend down uh, two stories of stairs down to a, um, a room with a, um, a window that will be about two metres by one and a half metres looking into the water itself. So below the below the level of the of the water and actually being able to see fish swimming past so it'll be a bit like an aquarium window but actually for seeing fish in their natural environment so that's yeah it's a really exciting really unique kind of feature that we can really kind of use to to try and take people below the surface and overcome that issue of maybe people not quite appreciating what there is um, in the river how, how will how will that work will it not be really dark yeah so that we are um, we are going to definitely be in a process of kind of learning but there will be lighting panels that will be um in place to actually light the light the water and in addition to that the way that the um the design of the fish pass has been made is that when we have groups visiting we can actually um put something in place that will um channel the fish quite close to the to the window so they'll be um they'll be a bit easier to see for for the groups um looking through the window that is just so cool I honestly want this on like every river like if, if you could just see what was under there I mean I live up in Manchester and I um I go on about the Mersey on this podcast all the time and it's dire state but I mean I don't think there'd be much there'd probably be a couple of wet wipes that would float past but I mean I don't know I could be in for a shock but it if you could just see what was down there it would just really open people's eyes to how much how much habitat there is um and how much biodiversity there is in in the rivers um oh, i just think i'm so excited to see it so when when will that be finished when can i go and visit <laughs> well with covid that's a bit of a kind of how long is a piece of string question but in terms of the actual construction it's it's really really close to being done now so i think there's a few sort of finishing touches um that need to be made to to the surrounding area and and also the interpretation side of things so we're going to be having um 
some interpretation and animation um, down in the space as well. So even if um, we can't orchestrate the fish to be swimming past in perfect formation, that there'll still be um, things that we can show people. So there's still a little bit of work to do and, and some exciting tweaks to be made. Um, but we're hoping to do some kind of pilots later on um, this sort of spring summertime. And then for a real kind of official, all, all guns blazing, bells and whistles opening in, in the following spring for the Shad Run. Oh, I think we're going to have to have a staff trip, Dan. We have to go down. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that'd be really exciting. I mean, so, and if people want to find out a bit more information about the project, is there anywhere they can go? Yeah, so the, the best sort of starting place probably is, is the website. So that's unlockingthe7.co.uk. But we've also got a really good sort of online social media presence. So our handle on social media is 7unlocked. So that would be um, where you can sort of follow us. Um, but in addition, we do have a newsletter that comes out as well. So if you go to the footer of any of the pages on the website, you can sign up for the free newsletter um, and that will keep you up to date on kind of what we're doing and also um, what kind of opportunities we've got. So in terms of volunteering, um, our amazing volunteering officer has worked really hard through COVID to put together sort of online um, volunteering opportunities. And so if that's something that you'd be interested in or the in-person volunteers when um, when they are back up and running the newsletter is a really good way of, of finding out about that awesome i can't wait to have a look at the um the viewing platform and yeah that sounds awesome we should probably mention all the other project partners because there's quite a few uh, organizations involved in this project isn't isn't there rosie who who else is involved yeah so we've got um it's a it's a it's part of the beauty of the project really um is the number of different organizations that are involved and the kind of depth and breadth of skills that that brings so personally um as the education side of things i work for the seven rivers trust um and charles um works for the environment agency so you've got two different organizations joining today but the lead partners on the project are in fact um canal and river trust so a lot of our um, community engagement team are based with them um, and then we've also um, got our partners with Natural England and then our, our funders of the um, Heritage Fund and, and EU Life as well. So it's it's definitely a, a diverse group. Yeah. And wh when is it due to be completed? So it depends on kind of um, which aspect that you're looking at. So in terms of the construction side of things, the capital works um, aim to be completed this year. So the two partial weir removals on the team um, have been completed and the natural bypass channel at Beverly Weir is also completed. That was the first of the fish passes to be to be um, finished. And then with um, Diglis and Lincoln weirs, uh, the fish passes on those weirs, those are very much nearing completion. So we're hoping to have those done within the next month or so. So the, the remaining weir that needs to be done is um, at a place called Holt. And that's been very challenging in terms of access um, and also the flooding. And so that will be pushed back a little bit further. And I think that's hoping to be completed around October this year. So October 2021. Mm. But with um, we've been really fortunate that because of our amazing funders, they've um, actually granted us an extension that will take us through until summer of 2022. So the community engagement side of things and also all of the amazing scientific research that's taking place, we'll get another um, shad run in the spring of 22, which will give us an opportunity to engage people, hopefully in, in, in a much more kind of face to face way um, and also give that extra year of data for, for Charles and his team as well. Yeah, you must have you must have really had a real setback with COVID with the community engagement side of things this last year it must have been really hard. Yeah, it definitely was. We had um, quite a sort of well, a very much jam-packed schedule for the for the spring and summer of 2020. So um, to kind of 
have to give that up was definitely a kind of sting at the time, but obviously something that everyone everyone had to do, and it was definitely the right decision to take. Um, but we worked really hard to be kind of adaptive and find alternatives to engage people, I think, as pretty much everybody has had to do um, moving online. So I've mentioned this at online volunteering opportunities, and we've also had a, a seven series of talks with different experts, um, all of which can be found on our YouTube channel. So if anyone fancies going and having a look at um, any of those talks, I'd really recommend that. And they're also interpreted by a British Sign Language interpreter. So in terms of um, being able to access those, we're trying to make sure that, that there aren't any inhibiting factors there. Um, and then from my perspective, the education side of things, um, we worked really hard to get a set of sort of learning packs up and running quite quickly so that families learning from home could have access to sort of free resources with um, supporting teacher and parent notes that would help them kind of educate from home. Um, and then in the last sort of last couple of months, um, I've also started running live virtual classroom sessions um, via Zoom. So the session I was chatting a little bit about earlier with the with the props and the hand gestures, I, I now deliver that um, over Zoom to classrooms um, around the country. Actually, we've got one in Milton Keynes that I'm doing in a couple of weeks, which will be excellent. And um, and that we've got really good feedback on that. So if if anybody is interested in finding out more they think they've got friends who are teachers or maybe you are a teacher and you'd like to find out more and teach your kids a little bit about this project um do just get in touch and we can book that in completely free of charge oh that sounds awesome huh, oh and amazing. dan you can volunteer then from cumbria Definitely. there you go there we go no excuse now Idea. yeah exactly if i if i could add there you know if anyone wants to um we also put on some video of the shad migrating which we use to get citizen scientists remotely from the site to to um, view and count the shad going up over the weir upper low weir in tewkesbury and that helps us with uh, coming up with a run estimate so you know you can be remote and still see a shad on the river seven awesome that's really cool yeah amazing i should really just add to to what um rosie was saying that um the the fish part as terms of fish passage the the fish pass at worcester Diglas weir is actually open so it's not open to um the public as such there's still quite a lot of fitting out to do um and as you say we've got to do testing on on, on that but it is actually open for fish and we've already seen a, a number of species using it. Um, it's still really cold at the moment, so not many fish are migrating, but we've had perch and dace and salmon and pike and roach, uh, bleak and sea lamprey um, and chub use the fish pass already. So that's that's excellent. Um, and the, the one further up at uh, Lincoln is almost, as I speak, um, being readied for, for opening for fish passage. Um, but again it won't be uh, complete because they've got to do a lot of stuff that's actually um you know ar around the site uh, clearing up and fencing and all that kind of stuff um, to do it but in terms of fish passage both of those should be open certainly by the end of this month it's amazing how many other species are using the fish passes that's just so great it's not just going to benefit the shad it's going to benefit so much more as well um like the salmon as well you know salmon obviously are, are endangered as well so it's fantastic um, have you have you in terms of COVID, have you guys noticed? I mean, I've certainly noticed a lot more people down by the river that I've ever seen before and enjoying obviously people enjoying out outside space like never before. And that's that surely is has uh, generated quite a lot of interest in your projects. In terms of um, around Worcester and Diglas, I have never seen so many people walking. They, they a few years ago made a pedestrian bridge 
um, downstream of Diglas Lock Island, um, which allows you to do a circular walk around the river at Worcester. And it is it was always used, but during lockdown, I have never seen so many people there who have to literally walk right next to the fish pass and the construction site. So, you know, there's obviously interpretation on the fencing, but, you know, talking to the, the people who are actually been building it, um, they they talk to people every single day about the fish pass, about the project, and it's been a, an amazing way of in, engagement. And the fish, the first fish pass to open, which was at Beverly, which is just upstream of Worcester, which appears to be in the middle of nowhere if you actually look at it on a map, um, but does have a footpath reaching uh, that goes to it. Um, has also been heavily visited um, by the local uh, public who just like sitting there watching the water going through. It's a different type of fish pass. It's called a column fish pass. So it's literally, you know, running through a, a long 100 metre section of bypass channel with a, a series of columns in which causes the water to eddy and, and, and spring around on its way down and make quite a nice noise. And, and that has been heavily visited. And I'm sure the, the passage of people past that along the public footpath has grown amazingly during lockdown. Absolutely. So I think we, we always uh, finish our podcast with um, this question and it is, what's your favorite river and why uh, so i'll start with rosie so i was thinking about this and i think i'm my answer might seem boring at, at the start but i will explain it so i think i would have to say the seven um and that isn't just because of the project but it's been a really sort of big feature in my life since childhood really so kind of grown up around the seven and i even did a gcse art project about eating chips with my family on on the river so it's been it's been very important um particularly with chip eating um, but now I sort of live within walking distance and it's the focus of my work. So it really does kind of feature daily. So I think I definitely have to say the seven. Ah, awesome. Um, and Charles? Right. I was also gave this some thoughts and I think uh, Rosie hit it on the head. It's, it's about the river that you, you live by is the one that um, strikes you as you, probably your favourite. You know, it's hard to have a favourite river, which is miles away from your home or you've never visited. Um, so, the obvious one for me is the River Severn, which I actually overlooked the estuary, not the actual main part of the Freshwater Severn. Um, so obviously I'm going to say that, but I'm also going to give a shout out uh, and be greedy to the one where I learned how to fish and grew up with, which is the River Way, which is a trip of the River Thames going through Surrey. Um, and, and the one that probably inspired me both to look at fish in the rivers, uh, of which are pretty unique to Britain, which is the River Itchen, the chalk streams of um, southern Britain um, are unbelievable places to inspire you in terms of not only fish, but also the environment and, and the wildlife that uses these river corridors. So I'm going to pick three. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, not at all. It's hard to choose one. Oh, well, thanks so much for coming on. It's a, I mean, I love doing these podcasts because I just get to find out so much more about lots of different things that are going around the country and this is a absolutely fantastic project so yeah thanks for taking the time to uh, educate us as well <laughs> as i say if anyone would like to find out more please do visit visit the website at unlockingthe7.co.uk sign up for that newsletter and get in touch if you've got any questions as well we're really keen to kind of and um, we do presentations for lots of different uh, abstract organizations especially now we can do them virtually so if you would like us to do a talk or share the information more broadly please do let us know uh, yeah fantastic thank you
that was awesome and how cool does that viewing platform sound we've got to make a trip down there right maybe you could do a podcast inside it oh oh i like it yes let's definitely do that oh no i think we definitely have to all go down i think we have talked about having a little staff trip down there um i yeah i would i'd just love to see it it's i think it's just the sort of thing we should have on like nearly every river um it just the variation of rivers as well would just be amazing um to see so yeah it's really it's it's a first i think it's a first right of you i don't know uh, and uh, we you know I've, we've definitely talked about it but never actually been able to uh you know get it to get to the point where it's actually been created so that's that's awesome um mega so well yeah well thanks all for listening again to another rambling about rivers podcast um hopefully got a few more coming up so make sure to um subscribe and and uh like and share and and send it to everyone you know um we really need your support so <laughs> desperate but Tune in for another one next time. Thank you. We've got to thank our sponsors today. The North Sea Region Interreg Water Co Governance Project.